Father, we thank you for your word. One of the advantages of going through it um, consecutively in, in order is that we are confronted with passages that we might otherwise overlook. But it is your word. You're at work in the midst of a mess, um, as we've seen so many times. And there's, a, there's an application to that. You're at work in our messes, in our lives, in our struggles, our sin. We give you thanks for that. We pray that your word would penetrate our hearts this morning, that your spirit would be at work, somehow speaking through, through it, and through me even. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Christianity is pretty crazy. It's wild. Its claims are off the charts, incredible, uh, scandalous, difficult to believe. Uh, you know, if you look at the claims of, of the world's religions, they're pretty tame by comparison. Uh, Athanasius famously said that uh, in Christian, for Christians, uh, the Son of God became a son of man so that we who are sons of men could become sons of, sons of God. That was the order, right? Think about that. Jesus Christ, God, God became human. He enfleshed himself. The author of life wrote himself into the story and entered into it. And he didn't come with, you know, fireworks and kind of slick, uh, powerful display of, of power. He came in weakness. In fact, for 30 years, he lived largely in obscurity. And for three years, just three years of his life, he begins his ministry, and he takes all of that power that he has coursing through him. It's God in the flesh. And what does he do? Does he exalt himself? No, he says, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom. And he pours his power out, healing people, curing people of sickness, causing the lame to walk again, bringing people back to life. He's, doing, he's feeding the hungry. He's doing all of these things for the benefit of humanity. And it all culminates in his death on the cross. He took sin upon himself, our sin upon himself, so that we might get his righteousness. That was the transaction that took place on the cross. He died. He was buried. He was raised back to life. He sits at the right hand of God the Father and all of creation, all the universe, this world and worlds we don't even know, they're all being united to him where he will rule and reign in perfection with us for all eternity upon his return. That's what we believe. That's what Christianity teaches. Athanasius again. The Son of God became a son of man. Jesus became a son of man so that we who are sons of men could become sons of God. We might be united to God and be in union with Him and become, as C.S. Lewis said, God's ourselves. That, that's what He's making us into the image of His Son and He's uniting us with His Son. That, the, that was, what was a tree of death for Jesus is a tree of life for those who believe. Now that's the way, Jesus is the way into God. Now one of the big questions that we want to consider every week really is how do we become more like Jesus? How do we get more united to Christ in our life? And we actually answered that question a few weeks back when we considered the topic of repentance. Uh, we looked at Jacob's repentance and we considered what repentance looks like. And that's the answer. We, we turn from our sins, repentance, turning, confessing and turning from our sin 
and turning to find new life in Christ. And as we do that over and over again, as we walk this walk of repentance, we're actually, we're actually becoming more like Christ and we're getting further united to him in our sanctification and our being made more like Jesus. Now, because repentance is fundamental to the Christian life, it's really important that we understand the mechanics of sin. And we have a wonderful example to understand the mechanics of sin in our passage this morning. So many of these Genesis passages can help us, ask us to confront the topic of sin. And this morning is no exception. So that's what we're going to look at, the dynamics of sin, Judah's sin. Now, quick review. We've been following this nomadic family making their way through the promised land. And they have, they have received these promises from God, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And now Jacob's sons, they've received these promises from God. They're wandering through as nomads. The promise is that they will be blessed. And moreover, they will be a blessing to all nations, to all people on planet Earth will be blessed through this family. But here's the thing. Time and time again, they've been fumbling the promises of God. They've been messing things up. And time and time again, God is faithful to his promises. We're going to see that again. Because his promises, as we're going to learn, get this, the promises of God rest on Judah. The the primary character in this passage, Judah. Because what we're going to learn is that there is going to be a lion that comes from Judah, Judah that will conquer the world. The lion of Judah is Jesus Christ. So we're seeing the, the promises of God play out. And this is a very important passage in the salvation, in the history of salvation. And so that's what we're going to consider. We're going to consider Judah's sin. And I believe our consideration of what goes on in this passage will help us in our own fight against sin. So we've got a few points this morning. Um, The first is sin crouches. Sin spends a lot on makeup. I'll explain that. Sin spends a lot on makeup. Sin acts like a boomerang. And then fourth, and maybe surprisingly, sin leads to self-righteousness. Okay, so sin crouches, sin spends a lot on makeup, sin acts like a boomerang, and sin leads to self-righteousness. And then we'll finally consider our hope. Look at verse 1. It happened at that time, and, and this is immediately, last week you remember Joseph was sold as a slave by Judah, who was the ringleader of the brothers, uh, and, as a slave, and they deceived their father. It was a wicked thing that the brothers did. Um, and, and so that's where we've left off. And so following that episode, Judah moves, to, uh, moves from his family, the family of faith. He turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. So he leaves the family of faith and he enters into the, Can- the land of the Canaanites and he befriends a Canaanite named Hira. Now, we read that, there should be little flares shooting in our minds. Uh-oh, Can- He's leaving the family of faith, and he's going to live among the the Canaanites. Who else did that in these stories? Lot did it. Remember Lot? His family left the family of faith and went to the Sodom and Gomorrah. And and how did that turn out? They narrowly escaped by God's grace. That wasn't good for the family. It ripped the family apart, caused all sorts of problems. Remember who else left the family of faith and went to live among the Canaanites, or at least kind of check things out in the Canaanite land? Dinah. She was sexually assaulted. She was held captive. Right? So Judah has done this. And it, it's, it's, 
We're anticipating problems in the act of that. And he becomes friends with Hira. And in verse 2, he, he sees, Judah sees the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Now, again, remember what Abraham and uh, Jacob and Isaac and Jacob all wished upon their, their sons, Abraham and Isaac especially? Don't marry the Canaanite women. They're trouble. Don't do it. Go travel a month away. Journey. Get away from the Canaanite women. And here's Judah. He's going and he sees. And look at how it's described. It's described as really being driven by lust. He sees. The verbs are Judah sees. Judah takes. Judah goes into. That's the, that's the progression. And so we begin, this, this whole passage covers like 22 years of history, about 22 years if you're, if you're kind of doing the math. So it's a big span of history. And what, so one of his sons, Ur, grows up and marries a Canaanite woman named Tamar. And Ur, we learn, and we don't get any explanation, and this is the first time someone is just struck dead because of wickedness um, in, in the scriptures. This is the first time it happens, and Ur is struck dead. And we don't know why, we don't know what happened, but he dies. And so now Tamar is left as a widow. Now in the ancient world, uh, the most vulnerable person on planet Earth would have been a widow, because, uh, especially a childless w- widow. Um, and so there was a provision made that a brother, the brother-in-law uh, of, of the dead husband would take the wife as his own to raise up a family through her. So Onan takes that responsibility. And... Um, he practices a form of birth control. And the reason he does that is because he, he's greedy. He knows that if he has children with Tamar, those children, he's going to spread his inheritance thin because they're not his children. They belong to Tamar. They're a provision for Tamar and her, her family to get provision and to be cared for and taken care of in this, in this society. Well, he doesn't want that. And so he's engaging in, in this sex without responsibility, we might say. Sex without sacrifice. And it's seen as wicked. And Onan dies too. And then look at verse 11. Judah says, and this is, this is the tension point in the whole story. Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house until Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brother. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Okay? So remember, Tamar's... She's left hanging out here with all these dead husbands and no children. And so Judah says, you just hang around. We got a little one coming up. He'll be your wife, or your husband. He'll be your husband. And, and, and so she stays, okay? Now the tension is, how is Tamar going to be provided for? Is she going to be cared for? Is she going to get out of this sort of destiny of poverty and, and, and break free from that? That's the question. That's the tension of the story. And then we learn that Judah's wife, the unnamed wife, by the way, um, Shua's daughter, dies. And Judah, he reminds me of Esau in the story. Because I, remember, remember Esau, he traded the promises of God for a bowl of soup, the blessing, the inheritance, all of it. He said, I don't care. He despised it is what the text. He despised those promises. He wanted a bowl of soup. Judah seems to be in the same boat. He doesn't care about the promises. 
He says, I'm out of here. I'm going to the land of the Canaanites to live there and see how life can fare there. Right? He does that. He marries a Canaanite woman, just like Esau did. He saw, and same verbs used. He saw, he took. And that's what Judah does. In so many ways, Judah is acting like Esau. And Judah, as we mentioned already, was the primary ringleader in, 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 in Joseph's uh, being sold as a slave to the Ishmaelites. The primary ringleader in that. And he, he brings that uh, to Jacob and says, look, we don't know what happened, but your brother, your brother, or your son died, Jacob. Your, your son died. Here's his garment, right? Judah leads all of that, and his father is mourning. And then we have Judah, so he seems cold. He seems calloused. His sons die. We don't see him mourning. I think that's intentional. We last left Jacob just mourning the loss of his. Judah doesn't seem to care. Doesn't say that he mourned. So Judah's wife dies, and it says, the second part of verse 12 says, When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and he had not been given to him in marriage. So, for all of Judah's failures, let's add this to the mix. He's been uh, promising something to Tamar that he is not willing to give. And the reason is he, he's afraid that Shelah is going to die just like the others. This is a cursed woman, this Tamar. I'm not giving her my last son. They'll probably die just like the rest, not realizing that it was the son's wickedness is why they were dying. Right? And, and, and Tamar is realizing this because Shayla is, is, is a marriage candidate at this point, and she's still not been given. And so Tamar, in an effort, a desperate attempt to secure her future prospects, she poses as a uh, prostitute. And it says, verse 15, as Judah is making his way, and she's totally covered, he thought that she was a prostitute, she'd covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. And he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And he engages in this relationship, and uh, this is the focus of this morning. So first point, sin crouches. First point. Now, sin crouches, that's one of the first things said about sin in the Bible. Remember back when we looked at Cain and Abel? Uh, God tells Cain that sin is crouching at your door. It's a predator. It's crouching, it's hiding, it, it, it gets small so as to conceal the threat that it poses. You're just walking along, you know, the tall grass is there, and pop, out of nowhere, lion comes, crouching lion, attacks you, and that's how sin works. There's no premeditation here on the part of Judah, and we know that because he didn't bring a goat, he didn't bring payment. In fact, this thing just sort of rises up within him upon arrival to this city, and he says, I want that. I don't have it. I'll give, I'll give you my pledge, my signet and my cord and my staff. This is like the signet, signet and cord. It was like a necklace that he had. And if he had to provide, um, you know, a letter or some sort of thing to identify himself, he would seal and stamp with his signet. It was his, it was his driver's license. It was his signature. It was his identifying item that would say, this is Judah's. Same thing with the staff. The staff also had a unique identifying uh, markings on it, just like we would brand a cow that would say, this is, 
This was his staff. So these are his identifying items that he's using to pledge later payment. This comes up out of nowhere. And that's how sin often works. It surprises us. And I would would venture to say that church people, our kind of people, are especially vulnerable to sin surprise attack. Because we like to think that we're we're better than that. We would never... We often find ourselves saying, at least in our hearts, I would never do that. I would never do that. I would never backstab a friend. I would never look at pornography. I would never get drunk or never evade my taxes or I would never fill in the blank. And once you've said that, you've set yourself up. You've put yourself in a vulnerable position. You know, uh, you are most vulnerable to an enemy when you believe the enemy poses no threat to you, like in a war situation. If you think the enemy has no threat, that's when you're most vulnerable, right? If you think these sins are just far removed, you never even touch it with a 10-foot pole, look out, surprise could be coming. Sin crouches. It comes up out of nowhere. And it has a way, just as it does here in Judah, of sweeping in swiftly and taking over. Remember, he wasn't planning on doing this. That's why he didn't bring payment in the first place. But it sweeps in and his lust overwhelms him and he uh, does this. Second thing I want us to see about sin. So sin crouches. But it also spends, sin spends a lot on makeup. Now this is a quote from Cornelius Plantinga who says uh, evil spends a lot on makeup. And here's the point. Sin has a way of dressing itself up. Judah, he's in a very compromised position right now. He's engaged in the sin, and there's just sort of all this shame hovering over him, right? Because he just, he just left his wallet in the hotel room. That's what happened to Judah. So he's, he's got a little bit of anxiety. He's got, a, he's got some loose ends that he needs to deal with, or else his pride, you know, kind of hangs in the balance. And so what he does is he sends his, his friend, Hira, into, into the city to make payment. Like, I can't, you, can you just go, go take care of this? So he sends Hira with his little goat in to find this, this woman. Look at what it says, verse 20b. To take, uh, he sends Hira in to take back the pledge from the woman's hand. Like, I got to get my driver's license wallet. I got to get all that back. Uh, the signet, the cord, the staff. But, but here's the thing. Hira doesn't, doesn't find her. And so he asks the men of the city, where's the cult prostitute who was at Anaim at the roadside? Now, this is subtle, but Hiram has just dressed up this sin, his friend. Because there was a different word used for prostitute in, or initially. She wasn't a cult prostitute. Uh, she was just a run-of-the-mill prostitute. And now, uh, all of a sudden, Judah engaged with a the, with the cult prostitute. Now, you may be thinking, well, pro- prostitute, are we, are we splitting hairs here? Aren't prost- isn't a prostitute a prostitute? Yeah, but that's what we do with sin, right? It's not, it's not like run-of-the-mill prostitutes, cult prostitute. Uh, you know, temple worship involved the, the prostitution in the ancient world. And it was believed that the, the, that worship, was, it was actually framed as worship in the ancient world. And such worship would bring fertility that, from the gods down upon the earth. That was the belief. And so my friend Judah was trying to serve the community here with a little temple worship with this prostitute, this cult prostitute. Can you help us find her? 
But that's not what, it, that's not what she was. Hira's dressing the sin up. And this is what we do. This is what we do with sin. We, we put the best face on it. Right? We, call, we call strip bars gentlemen's clubs. Great example of how we dress up the sin. We, the, the foundation is rotting and we just kind of get paint on there to try to fix it up, make it look pretty. This week, um, abortion was, was in the news, made big headlines. It was in the news all week. Um, and notice how it's talked about. It's, it's, it's not an unborn child. It's a pregnancy or a fetus. Um, it's pro-choice. It's, it's simply a choice. It's reproductive rights. Right? We dress it up. We did something similar in the 19th century where we, 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 we enslaved, we cut off from life and liberty a whole population of people based not on size and level of development, but based on their race. Okay? And we, but they weren't people. Right? We couldn't say that they were people. They were property. They were chattel property. That's what, that's what they were. And it wasn't slavery. It was kind of our southern economic stimulus plan. That's what we were working on. Right? That's what we do. Whether it's like across the culture, kind of dressing sin up, or even personally, like we do it ourselves. The workaholic's not a workaholic, they're just providing for their family. The overbearing parent really just cares. The abusive coach is just trying to draw out the best. And the athlete, right, that's what we do. We dress it up and we forget, and and over the course of dressing it up like that, we forget it stinks. It stinks. Try to put the paint over it or smell the, spray the Lysol around it. There's this incredible, I think very moving scene in Amazing Grace where the movie, where a slave ship arrives in the harbor and the people, the rich, wealthy British people are holding their noses and they're just repulsed by the stink coming from the boat. You've got bodies just on top of each other and feces and urine and body odor and they, it's, it's, a, it's a stink. And people are holding their nose, they're disgusted, they're repulsed, and one person yells from the, do- from the dock, that sin is your stench. That stink, I'm sorry. That stink and stench is your sin. That stink is your sin. It's your sin, your greed that's driving this whole enterprise. It's your sin. And so it is. Now look at, look at verse 21b. The, the men of the city say, no cult, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I've not found her. And also the, the men of the place said, uh, no cult prostitute has been here. Like nobody knows where she is, who she is. We can't find her. And Judah replied, okay, uh, let her keep the things as her own or we will be laughed at. See, I sent this goat. Like I did what I said I was going to do. You didn't find her. Just let a sleeping dog lie. Let's not pursue this thing any further, and maybe it'll just go away. That's what, that's what Judah's thinking. And so, we've seen sin has crouched. Sin spends a lot on makeup. It tries to dress itself up. Now, very, very briefly, I want to just point out that sin acts like a boomerang. Genesis has been really clear on this. Sin acts like a boomerang. You, you sow sin, you, you know, fling the boomerang out, and you turn around, walk on your way, no problem, and then boom, the boomerang hits you back in the head. That's happened time and time again. Remember Jacob deceiving his father, Isaac, using his brother's cloak, using a dead goat with the skins, 
And remember, remember what just happened to him last week? Well, remember Laban? Laban deceived Jacob in, in a similar fashion. And then just last week, his brothers, Judah being the ringleader, took his brother's cloak, Joseph's cloak, and a dead goat and took it to Jacob, the exact same thing, and took it to Jacob and deceived Jacob, right? And here, here's happening again. A cloak? A woman's covering stuff in a cloak. Uh, a, a goat's involved, too. Same thing, same two items. And here's Judah being deceived. Again, what goes around comes around. Sin acts like a boomerang. Now, the fourth point that I want to settle in on for just a, a bit is that sin leads to self-righteousness. And we see that here in the big unveiling. Verse 24 says about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. And Judah's thinking, what? Tell me more. Not just that, but she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out, burn her. And here's the thing. Judah's guilty of the exact same thing. Judah's the culprit. Judah's the father of this, right? You see the, 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 the just profound irony taking place. Judah has become self-righteous, and this is, the, this is one of the grand ironies of sin, of what sin does to our hearts. It actually makes us self-righteous, and it, it happens because we work so hard to try to dress it up, to try to forget it, to try to downplay it, that we begin to puff ourselves up. Because I believe, this is important, I believe, and this is one of our fundamental, my, my fundamental assumptions every week when we gather, is that all of us on our own, our default position is to be uh, engaged in a project of our own self-validation and self-justification. That's what we're all doing. And some of us do that by kind of obeying all the rules. Some of us do it by running from all the rules and trying to kind of blaze our own trail. But we're all trying to validate and justify our own existence. And and here's the thing. Because of that, we can't reckon with our sin. It undermines that project. And so we work so hard to suppress and deny and forget and downplay our own sin. And that's what Judah has done. It's three months have passed, right? He's, op- you know, that, that thing's breathed a little bit. He's kind of forgotten about all of that sin. You know, it's interesting to me that um, in the 90s, people talked about moral relativism being a, being a big deal, being a, a thing that, you know, just kind of, I got my moral code and you've got yours and we'll just kind of do, do our thing and all get along. And now, as, as we've moved into the 2000s, and especially with the advent of social media, that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Like, if you make a moral misstep on, on Twitter, whatever side of the spectrum you're on, look out. You're going to have a mob coming for you. Off with your head, right? We're not moral relativists. We, 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 we're, we're very righteous, self-righteous. And that's what sin does. Sin in the interest of our own project of self-validation, we want to lob grenades all around us, but never inspect our own sin. We, we, we see the specks in all the eyeballs around us, but we forget that we've got big logs hanging out of our own eyes. And that's what sin does. 
So the question, I think really important question for us, for the church, for the whole church, is how do we turn things around? How do we start seeing the logs in our own eyes first and then maybe considering the specks in others, not because we want to judge them, but because we want to see them, their lives improve and we want to see flourishing come into their lives. How do we get to that point where we look at our logs first, see the specks later? How does that happen? Well, it happens um, just like what happens to Judah here because something is about to happen to Judah that is going to completely change the course of his life. This is a pivot point in Judah's life. From this point forward, we're going to see a different Judah emerging in the scriptures as they unfold. The cold, calloused brother is about to undergo a change. And we're going to see it right here, verse 25. As Tamar was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I'm pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these things are, the signet, the cord, the staff. And then Judah identified them and said, boom, she's more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again, right? Conviction of sin. That's what happens to Judah. He's convicted of his sin, and he makes this 180-degree turn. And this is what Jesus says about the conviction of sin. There's only one way that it can happen. It happens actually outside of you. It's a work of God's Spirit in your heart. That's what the Holy Spirit does. It convicts sin. And that's what's just happened to Judah here. He sees his sin. He sees the log hanging out of his eye all of a sudden. He saw a log in Tamar's eye. Burner! And then he sees, he sees the log in his own eye. And by comparison, he sees just a tiny little speck in her eye. She's more righteous than I. He's not saying she's perfect. He's saying, she's by comparison, she's more righteous. It's a, it's a complete 180. And she, he calls out his sin of, of wanting to keep her in perpetual poverty. Like, I've not given my son to her as I promised. And there's even fruit here. The conviction of sin leads to a fruit in Judah's life. And the fruit is repentance. You see it there at the very end. He does not know her again. He has no more sexual relations with her. It's a fruit of repentance there. And what we're going to see as these, as these scriptures unfold is that God is beginning a work to soften Judah's heart and to give him a sacrificial heart. At the end of the story of Genesis, Judah is giving his life for his brothers. We're going to see that. And it all begins here. This is the turning point, the conviction of sin. This is how it all happens. And it's our turning point, too. The only, we, sing, we sing this um, often. The only fitness that Jesus requires is that we see our need of him, the hymn says. And the mark of a faithful person, the mark of a Christian, is a readiness to confess our own sins, a readiness to see the logs in our own eyes before we start seeing the specks in others. Now, I I, I referred to abortion earlier. That's a hot topic, isn't it? And I do so with reluctance. Not because, not because I, um, I don't believe that we're talking about unborn life, and I, and I also don't believe that, I, you know, that um, it was even a good decision just from the Supreme Court perspective, okay? Not because I don't have opinions on it. The reason I'm, I hesitate to bring it up 
is because I think the church is so good at seeing sins that it believes are out there and sort of lobbing the grenades as, you know, the culture warriors throwing the grenades out and failing to see the logs that are in our own eyes. Because if we don't see the logs that are in our own eyes, we're going to come out, we're going to burn, burn the sinner, right? Burn the sinner. We're not going to proceed and walk forward, especially in a hostile crowd, with gentleness, as Jesus did. And that's our call. That's what grace does to us. And that only happens as we first see the logs in our own eyeballs. Let me say that this is a total footnote to this sermon, but I want to I just say it because it's, a, it's, it's in the news right now and we're thinking about this. I don't even like the way the whole abortion discussion is framed. Total footnote here. I don't, I, I'm not happy with how it's framed because it's in one corner are people that care about unborn children and in another corner are people that care about uh, pregnant mothers. Listen to what, I just read this this morning and so this is totally unscripted right here. Uh, and actually, this is maybe a plug for the By Faith magazine, which is available on the other side of that wall. <laughs> this, is the, this is the celebrating life issue. This is a whole, whole article on abortion. But listen to how the author begins it. It's, it's a guy named, a pastor named Scott Sauls. He says, isn't our ultimate goal to build community and dialogue and to live in a society where abortion, because of the love that's ready to be given to any child and any mother, is not merely illegal, but unthinkable? Isn't that the goal, right? To create, to see a society be transformed by a love to where, to where abortion is not, it's, it's, it's not a choice on the table because it's unthinkable. Not just because it's illegal. That's, that's what I want to see. That's what the Christian vision, I believe, puts forward is that kind of hope. Okay. So, this is so important for us as a church. We have to turn from directing our attention to the sin that we perceive to be out there, which really isn't. There's no, you know, what's, what's the line? There's, a, there's, a, there's good and bad, and the line runs right through all of us, right? It's not out there, but we, we think it's out there. If we stop focusing on the things that are out there and begin looking inside more. G.K. Chesterton in the Sunday Times, uh, well, the, so the Sunday Times put out a letter and said, this is the early 1900s, what's wrong with the world? And they invited response, responses from their readers, and G.K. submitted his response, and he wrote, Dear Editor, comma, I am, period, sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. That's our response. What's the problem with the world? I am. I'm the problem, right? It's me, and that's what Chesterton says. And one reason we can even begin to do that It's not natural for us to write what Chesterton wrote. The reason we can do that is because we're resting in a righteousness that is not our own. We're resting in Christ's righteousness, right? If we're resting in our own self-righteousness and our own project of self-validation, no way we say what Chesterton says. But if we come to the righteousness of Christ and rest there, yeah, bring your criticism. I can receive it. My heart doesn't harden. I don't have to deflect those things. I can receive those things because my righteousness is not my own. It's Christ. And when we rest in the righteousness of Christ, it takes the edge off. We're not so angry. Now, there's a place to be angry. I'm not calling for mushy, 
I'm calling for like cultural engagement, but gentle, loving, gospel-bearing cultural engagement. That's what, I'm, that's what I think this produces in us. And here's the thing, you can't, you're, you're, the, the work of Christ for you is so perfect and so complete that your sins can't stop it, can't invalidate it. The sins of Judah here, I mean, this is an uncomfortable passage to read, but his sins can't stop it. We can't stop the righteousness of Christ. In fact, it's, God is at work bringing forth his salvation purposes even here. Look, 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 at, look at verse 27. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you've made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Now, Perez, firstborn of Tamar in Judah's union. Tamar is not righteous, but she is an instrument, an enormous instrument that God is using in the salvation of you and me, of God's people. Listen to what Waltke says. Tamar, a wrong wife, wrong in quotation marks, right? She's a Canaanite woman. No, wrong, not even a wife, a prostitute at first. Wrong wife saves the family by her loyalty to it. Matthew names, Matthew and Matthew's gospel names four women in the genealogy of Jesus. Four mothers, it's Mother's Day. Four mothers of Jesus. Only four. Do you know who, it's incredible who they are. Tamar, who posed as a prostitute and and actually functioned as a prostitute. Rahab, who was a Canaanite prostitute. Ruth, who wasn't a prostitute, but remember her family past? Remember her skeletons in the closet? She was a Moabite. Her father was, her her great-great-great-grandfather was Lot. The Moabites came because Lot's daughters got him drunk and raped him. And that's where the Moabites came from. Very sketchy past. And then Bathsheba, and we know all the stuff surrounding Bathsheba. These are the only four women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. See, God works in our lives. Like, this is good news. I I don't know if you feel like your life is too messy for Jesus to be at work in. It's not. He's working right here. Max Lucado somewhere, I think it's God came near. It's it's, it's something that's stuck. He says, you know, we want to keep Jesus kind of out of the mess of our world, you've got to let him in. Only if you let him in can he pull you out, right? Athanasius, the son of God, became a son of man. That's, that's what all this means. This is what it means to become a son of man, to work your way through human history, you know, the, even the, the, the DNA of human history. He became a man. He entered into our mess so that he could pull us out, so that he could make us, who are sons of men, sons of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these, these glorious truths, um, even found here. We thank you that Judah was not beyond repair, but your spirit convicted him of sin. 
And what we're going to see emerge is they transform Judah over the next few chapters. And we give you thanks for that. We thank you that you were willing to work and not leave us to our own devices. But you enter into our mess. And we confess at times feeling, wondering, uh, are you working? Are you there? Um, Root us more deeply in Christ's love so that we might live uh, as generous people, confident, not in ourselves, but in your work in our lives for our good and benefit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.